Money Review podcast. This is Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. The recent jump in inflation and rising interest rates have sparked fears of a recession. But there's one sector where business is booming like never before. Scamming. Online crime, social engineering, advanced fee fraud, authorised push payment fraud, banking and card fraud, identity theft, romance fraud, cryptocurrency scams, There are endless creative ways in which criminals can relieve you of your hard-earned savings. To talk about this topic, I'm joined by Simon Miller, Director of Policy and Communications for Stop Scams UK. Listen in for the next 30 minutes to improve your awareness of scams and to learn how best to protect yourself. Simon, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and about Stop Scams UK? Absolutely. So firstly, hello, everyone. I'm Simon Miller. I'm the Chief Policy and Communications Officer at Stop Scams UK. And for those of you, and I'm sure there will be many who don't know who or what Stop Scams UK is, we are an industry-led collaboration of responsible businesses from across the banking, technology and telecom sector who have come together to find new and innovative solutions that will help stop scams at source. And broadly, we do three things. We try to protect consumers, and we do that mostly through our 159 phone service, which will connect UK consumers with their bank should they ever receive an unexpected phone call about a financial matter. And the idea is that you can check whether that phone call was legitimate or whether it was a scam. We try to prevent fraud, and mostly through the sharing of data between firms and across sectors to enable people to enhance their existing systems, tools, and capability. And finally, and this is where my role is potentially most significant, we try to influence the policy landscape to make it easier for firms to do the right thing by their consumers by pushing for and uh, trying to facilitate proportionate, reasonable, sensible changes to the policy framework. Great. How, how high up is this on the agenda of policymakers, whether that's central government, the, 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 the financial regulators, the central bank, the tech regulators? So I think for everyone, scams is a journey. And we've gone from a point not that many years ago in which fraud and scams were broadly ignored by big parts of the policy landscape and certainly by successive governments. I think regulators have taken the issue of fraud and scams very seriously for a number of years. And you can see patterns and changes in the rules that regulators have brought forward, particularly in the payment services arena, but also by Ofcom as well with new measures in the the telecom space to really tighten up on some of those abusive practices. So the ability of spoof numbers to arrive on UK systems, working with telecoms providers to ensure that they all have effective spam shields in place. But I think with all of this, and we have seen a step change in government's approach with the publication of the fraud strategy earlier this year, This is the start of a journey that needs to accelerate because policy in relation to fraud and scams is so far behind the curve, so far from where it needs to be, although it is probably better than it is in many other jurisdictions. And there's a great deal of work that needs to be done, particularly to enable data sharing, but also to drive real leadership through the ecosystem and better coordinate the response of private partners in in this space. Could you um, throw some light on the the size of the problem? Uh, I, I found on your website some figures showing that UK finance uh, estimated that criminals stole 
1.2 billion pounds last year. Um, another estimate was quite quite a lot higher. Global Anti-Scam Alliance estimated that 10% of Britain's lost money to scams in 2022, with losses estimated at 7.5 billion. What, what, what do you think the, the figure is, if we can estimate it? So I think the true figure, unfortunately, is probably much, much higher than either. So the issue that we all have with fraud and scams is that they are underreported and underreported by very, very significant factors. So we know that currently you are more likely to experience a fraud or a scam than any other type of crime in the UK. 41% of all reported crime is a fraud. Probably only 5% of fraud and scams are reported. There's been some really interesting work by Crow Consulting. Uh, together with the University of Portsmouth that puts the costs of fraud to the UK at something like £219 billion each year. And I think until we have much better reporting, until we have consistent collation of data, we're never really going to know the true picture. The figures provided by UK Finance are scams and fraud reported by customers to the banks. And right. much, much lower, although are accurate insofar as that is what they reflect, but are much, much lower than the true total will certainly be. Right. Why, why is, you mentioned data sharing earlier. Why is data sharing important in helping stop scams? It's such a good question, Paul. So I think the issue that people have with fraud and scams when they're trying to prevent them is they only have very partial sight of the true picture. So if you are a tech platform, all that you will see is a piece of content on your platform. And that content will broadly be indistinguishable from entirely legitimate content. Otherwise, it would be removed. If you are a telecoms provider, the fraud and the scams are simply bits of information that pass across your pipe. And if you're a bank, you're in the unfortunate position of being right at the sharp end and having to refund customers who lose money to fraud and scams. Now, to get that total picture requires each of those parties to sharp the to start sharing information with each other on a much, much bigger scale than is currently the case. And through that sharing of information, what you would hope is that tech platforms, for instance, would be better able to identify that scam content because it would be being informed by the bank's real experience of what that fraudulent content may have looked like, as well as also the network and compound benefits that you get for much, much wider data sharing of understanding what is going where, who is sending it, rather than the often partial and small pictures that we have at the moment. Right. You, you, you mentioned earlier that you, your organisation um, combines uh, members from the finance, uh, telecoms and tech sectors. How well aligned are the responsibilities and the, and the liabilities of firms in those sectors? Because... I know, and this is something I want to come on to ask you about in a bit more detail, that if a customer is, can, can show a bank that he or she has been scammed, but you know, out, you know, the, the reason was outside their control, they weren't grossly negligent, they didn't, you know, they didn't do anything stupid, they were honestly kind of cheated, the bank may well reimburse them. You know, but that's the bank's responsibility. Are there, are there, at a sector level, are the responsibilities and the liabilities for restituting money fairly shared out? So it's a really interesting question, and it's clearly one that most of our members and indeed different sectors have clear views on. A lot of that plays out in the press. What I will say is at our table, all of our members are actively committed to doing what they can to stop fraud and scams, and are clear that they're only going to be able to do it 
by working together on a systemic cross-sector basis. Now, in terms of the liabilities, the legislative framework around who pays what is changing. We now have an online safety act in place, although it has yet to be formally implemented and yet to gain rural assent. But that will compel lots of the tech companies to change some of their practices with the risk of swinging great fines if they aren't able to remove that fraud and scam content in a way that hasn't been the case before. In the telecom space, Ofcom is compelling many of the telecoms companies to introduce new security measures that will help better protect their networks and systems and therefore keep people safe, but also has a really significant cost. So whilst it may be the banks that are ultimately liable and there's a public policy decision to be made there as to whether that is right and should be the case, all sectors are having to contribute really quite significant sums of money to the fight against fraud and scams. Right. But I mean, if, if, a, if, a, if a fraud or a scam starts, so let's say, on social media, um, where a lot of the scams do originate, I think, and then ends up with a payment from the person being defrauded to the scammer, uh, and the banks or the banks involved, or the, the paying bank or the two banks involved have to pay, basically compensate the person being defrauded. Is that fair? So, I mean, there's always going to be questions around liability and what is fair, and every system creates winners and losers. I think one of the problems that we all have with fraud and scams is where the liability sits. If that fraudulent content or that content that led to the scam looks entirely legitimate, was published legitimately, and indeed, in many cases, that is the case. It's what happens after that content is engaged with. That is the problem. But then the person who is scammed or defrauded is then bounced from platform to platform, system to system. How do you fairly prove liability? I think with this whole debate, what's more important is we work out how to best protect people and keep them safe than get hung up on where the cost should fall. Right. Where would you say the biggest um, loopholes are in the current system, whether it's weaknesses at the telecoms firms, fake information on social media, or some structural weaknesses in the, let's say, in the payments framework? So I think some of the great challenges are how do we identify legitimate content? How do we know that we should that we can trust the content that we are fair? We don't live in a world now where our only access to content is four television channels and a small number of, uh, small number of newspapers. Content is constant, it is everywhere, and differentiating between what is verifiable and legitimate and what is not is increasingly complex. And there are real questions in policy terms about how we address media literacy and content literacy so people are better able to identify what is genuine and what is fake. I think sitting beside that, we need to understand why scamming is so endemic in the UK. Now, there is no doubt that faster payments, which are of huge benefit to so many people, it means I can pay for anything instantaneously, have, have makes the UK market particularly susceptible to certain types of fraud. Because the, in, the opportunity for the banks to intervene in payment processes are slim and measured in fractions of a second rather than any greater timescale. I think what we need to do is establish exactly where those points of weakness and vulnerability are and start to close them down. I think we also need to establish why some of the solutions to fraud and scams, particularly data sharing, which is allowed in law, doesn't happen in the way in which it needs to. It may happen between certain firms. It may happen on an intersector basis. 
It doesn't happen on that cross-sectoral basis in anywhere like the scale that it needs to, to have genuine benefit. To my mind, that says we need to start looking at why that doesn't happen. And there's no doubt that there is legal complexity and potentially quite a lot of confusion by a framework that caused by a framework that is unclear and is urgently in need of reform. If not to the core legislation, then at least to the guidance uh, and guidelines that sit around it. Because what we need to make clear is that it isn't that data sharing is allowed for the purposes of preventing fraud, but is actively encouraged so that banks and other institutions don't think they're taking on unnecessary regulatory risk in engaging in practices that should better help keep people safe. How, how well um, developed or well, well designed is the, um, the framework for some of the actors involved in faster payments? You mentioned that the UK has got one of the better designed you know, instant payment systems in the world, uh, but that's also made it in some ways easier for scammers. I noticed that on your membership list, there's, there are several you know, banks that might be classified as fintechs because they're well known to us as providers of apps on our mobile phones. But I also saw, well, looking down the list, it seems to me that there were not that many, there are many, many fintechs that are not banks uh, that provide faster payment services and they were not on your list. So is that is that a is that by design? Is are you trying to get more of those firms involved, or is that some, a loophole that you know could be, is is being exploited? So absolutely, we want more people to join. I mean, our view is that the more people who are part of networks like ours, communities like ours, the more effective the solutions that are developed at our table will be, because it's about closing down those loopholes, closing down those gaps and vulnerabilities, as you so rightly say. So. Our membership grows all the time, and we have a long list of neobanks and fintechs that we're talking to, to bring them in, to enable good learning and best practice to be shared across the piece. Um, But I think it's worth noting as well that the rule changes that will be brought in by the PSR, by the payments uh, system regulator, over the course of the next 12 years, mandating compulsory reimbursement for consumers who lose money to fraud and scams applies to so many, if not all, of those neobanks and fintechs. And that will ensure that there is a single regulatory framework for them, levelling that playing field. But I think much more importantly than that, giving consumers certainty that they will get their money back if they have been uh, defrauded or scammed. Right, because some of, those fintechs, some of those fintechs have got... Um... They, you know, they, if you look at the figures, they they don't have the the same. Um, at least the, based on the, some of the figures I've seen, they they don't automatically reimburse consumers that have been defrauded to the same extent that some banks might do. Let's put it that way. No, and, and that's the issue at the moment. So currently, we obviously have a voluntary care, which only a smaller number of banks, mostly the big uh, high street retail banks, are signatory to, where reimbursement is is almost standard practice, and in the case of one, uh, it's actually a a market-leading position for them that they will reimburse in all cases. PSR rule changes will change that. It will mean that all have to, and it will also, I think critically important, split liability between sending and receiving bank. And what that does, it creates incentives for those firms who currently don't have to pay out 
and maybe just receive rather or predominantly receive rather than send to really invest in their backroom systems to ensure that payments are legitimate, they are right, and that they aren't they aren't subject to fraudulent activity or muling. So some of those um, fintech and um, e-money firms are going to be facing higher regulatory and compliance costs in the UK, it sounds like. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, again, any system change will create some winners and some losers. In this case, the clear winners are consumers. Hopefully, the losers will be the scammers and those organisations who haven't in, haven't invested, as perhaps they might have done, in secure systems. There's obviously always a chance with a system in which people are automatically reimbursed that you also incentivize fraudulent activity. And there's a lot of work that will be being done by the banks and the PSR at the moment in discussion with one another to try and close down some of those potential unintended consequences of the rule changes. Right. You talked about one bank you know, taking a market-leading position by reimbursing everybody. Isn't that going too far? I mean, don't we want to uh, tell people that if you do stupid things with your money, you, you're going to lose it? I think consumer education and improving consumer caution is absolutely paramount for this. I would never criticise, I think, an organisation for paying out. And there will obviously always be exceptions to that rule where there has been gross negligence or real suspicion around the type of activity. I think what we want to get to a point is where consumers habitually check when something is too good to be true, when something is unexpected, uh, and when something potentially arise through unexpected channels. That is what will keep them safe. The the people involved in conducting some of these frauds, I mean, having done some reading and interviewed people on this subject over the last couple of years, it's been a a journey for me of discovery, uh, and I've been amazed to find out how sophisticated uh, and well-researched and kind of innovative some of the scammers are. They really are global operations in many cases, with different teams of people in different countries, uh, finding loopholes in the system. Is it going to be possible to catch up with these people? Because they seem to be very, very sophisticated. So I think it is possible, and I think it's absolutely what we should be aiming to do. I think the really interesting thing in what you said there, Paul, was just how sophisticated, how globalised some of these criminal actors are. I think we have to move beyond this world in which we see fraud as a victimless crime. Fraud creates extraordinary victims. It creates massive personal, emotional distress, as well as the financial loss that uh, goes with that. But in enabling fraud or allowing fraud or having systems that allow fraud, we are mostly mostly enabling the funding of serious organised crime. Uh, That includes terrorism, extortion, kidnapping, slave trading, and in many cases, that will be linked to hostile state actors as well. What we need to do globally, and I think we're only going to win the fight against fraud if we start to coordinate efforts internationally, starting potentially with those key jurisdictions that where if we can get a uniformity of approach, we can start to get some major wins, uh, but then expanding outwards. Fraudulent actors often base their activity in countries where rule of law is very different to the UK, where sometimes state authorities will turn an active blind eye to the criminal activity that's going on. What we need to do is is work with our international partners, work with other nations to really start doing all we can to improve governance in those jurisdictions. 
And I think we should keep in mind that this isn't people from abroad just doing something to us. It may be true that 70% of all fraud has an element in it that involves an external jurisdiction, but it's the people in those countries themselves who may be being forced to work in some of these uh, criminal call centres to undertake this activity, who are also being defrauded on an almost daily basis. Yeah, so um, there was a, there was a case written well. about in, in Wide, Wide magazine a, a couple of weeks ago about a, a, you know, a very sad case where a woman had been defrauded in a, in a romance scam. She'd met somebody on a, on a dating site and they'd never actually met physically, but they struck up an online relationship and he persuaded her to, uh, or we don't know if it was a he, but the, the scammer persuaded the woman to invest some money in a cryptocurrency trading opportunity, which turned out to be fraudulent. And then she couldn't get money, her money back from her US bank because she transferred the money voluntarily to the crypto trading site. The crypto exchange didn't help either. And then it turned out that the people laundering the money at the other end were in places like uh, Thailand, Myanmar or Nigeria, and often forced to do that work uh, in those locations. So this is, I mean, we're, we're dealing with a global internet, aren't we? And a lot of these things happen on social media or dating sites. I mean, it's, that is not possible to control, surely. I think we, there is a world in which we can work towards much greater controls to better identify that content, uh, to work with international authorities, so deterrence and enforcement are that much more effective. Um, but it does require real effort and very significant coordination that can only come from government uh, and the governments of some of the richest and most powerful countries in the world. But I think we should also remember, I, I, you, the, the story you tell is, is so opposite of uh, the tragedy of fraud and scamming. But in so many cases, the victim, and we probably ought not to use the word victim, but the person who experiences that fraud is acting against their own best interests, that they have been socially engineered, they have been manipulated, so scams are only effective because they take advantage or uh, are able to abuse our moments of insecurity and vulnerability. And that process can be many, many months, if not years, in the making. It can cause lasting harm. But also attached to that are the feelings of shame that those who experience scams and fraud will feel, that will then mean that they will not report it because of those feelings of shame, because the way we talk about scams, the way we talk about fraud, this is something we fall for rather than something that is done to us by hostile criminal actors. Yeah. Discourages us from reporting these things. And without proper reporting, we're never going to get a proper grip on the scale of a problem or have the evidence base to take the appropriate action that is needed. So we've got to stop using language that shames victims. We've got to make it much easier for those who experience crime to be able to report it. And then we've got to make it easier for all of those involved in the supply chain to do something about those crimes, be it enforcement action afterwards or prosecution, or be it preventative action upstream in the first instance. Yeah. Um Yeah. Scammers in many places can now spoof um, caller IDs. They can pretend to be from someone like the tax office when they're not. They can even spoof people's faces and voices increasingly. Um, how on earth are we going to cope with that? It doesn't that open a like a, a 
another level of potential scamming opportunities. So I think there's a mixture of good news and bad news in what you say. So I come from a telecoms background. Number spoofing was always a big issue. So the arrival on UK networks of numbers that originate abroad with a fake UK number as a cover. So when you receive that call, you might think it is from your bank or you might think it's from another UK number. Most networks are now either have in place or are putting in place technology that will stop those numbers from arriving. That will be a real difference and that will close down many of the opportunities that scammers have to, to perpetrate scams by phone. I think when you talk about deep fakes, voice cloning, and it, uh, uh, I think it opens up a wider question about AI and some of the opportunities and threats that are being presented by a very new technology around which there's an awful lot of hyperbole and hype. There is no doubt that AI will, as a technology, potentially enable scams to become more sophisticated, because the types of fake material that we currently see will be able to, will be able to be generated much more effectively, much more quickly. Um, but AI also presents opportunities to prevent fraud from happening, to really improve detection rates, to fight hostile chatbots with chatbots on the side of good, as well as being a, a hugely beneficial tool overall. So we've done some work with our banking members and PwC to look at some of those threats and some of those opportunities, how immediate they are at the moment, although there are clearly examples of uh, ma- of malignant AI-generated content on social media platforms and elsewhere. They are not being used to perpetrate fraud as yet. It's mostly for impersonation purposes. Those attacks aren't happening again UK banks, and most UK banks think they're really well prepared to be able to meet those challenges. And that no matter what the threat presented by AI, it's actually an evolutionary threat, as opposed to a revolutionary threat. And it will be AI that helps us solve those challenges. I guess you could make the same argument about cryptocurrency. So cryptocurrency is involved in a lot of scams, both as the tool of the transfer of the money, and also in some cases, the, the kind of the, the setup uh, itself, you know, being being enticing people through promises of very high gains, but because it's traceable, it can also be used to unravel some of the money movements. Exactly that. I think you put that perfectly. Um, what you talked about the need to coordinate policy globally. If I could ask you, which countries, in your view, are getting it right on addressing you know, money scams, uh, which which uh, which are doing well and which are doing not so well? So it's a really interesting question, and is anyone getting it right? Possibly not. There are those countries who probably have a more effective record, places like Singapore, but the tools and systems that they use to be able to better detect fraud and scams comes at the cost of compromised privacy for many of its citizens. And there's a public policy debate to be had around there. There's some really interesting initiatives in some parts. Uh, I'll point to the Emergent National Anti-Scam Centre in Australia, where at the heart, they're seeking to build a single reporting and data sharing mechanism. Now, that could be a game changer for the capabilities of bank technology companies and telecoms in Australia to be able to use that pooled data to fight fraud and scams. But I don't think we should beat ourselves up in the UK. I said a while ago that the policy response has been slow. We're also much further ahead than many other jurisdictions. And there are some very, very good things in the fraud strategy on which we need to build. 
I think the the important thing is that we maintain that political momentum, no matter which party is in power. And we seek to learn from the mistakes that have been made previously and not be complacent in our response. Yeah. Would would, uh, would the existence of a, a, a national digital identity help in addressing the problem? Um, so a national digital identity would better enable platforms to verify that the user is who they say they are. That type of identity system scheme is fraught with political difficulties and possibly, and probably unacceptable to most political parties. Uh, um, the fact that we don't have to carry around an identity card and we don't have to prove who we are is a quintessential part of UK citizen identity and, and perhaps something that we should we should cherish. But in so doing, it does leave us slightly more exposed to some of the solutions which will be more readily available in other jurisdictions where carrying an identity card has been mandatory for many, many years. So having a verifiable digital identity would just be an evolutionary step rather than a dramatic change in policy. Yeah. And if you could offer three pieces of advice to somebody listening to the podcast who might be concerned about becoming a victim, uh, what, are, you know, what, what kind of three lines of defence can they take to reduce their chances of getting scammed? So I think we should all be concerned about having a victim because I mean, the extraordinary thing about fraud and scams is this is no particular demographic um, who is most affected. And so we should all be vigilant. And how do we be vigilant? I think one, let's all be careful of things that are too good to be true. That should be our starting point. If it's an investment that's offering sky-high rates of return, that probably isn't wholly legitimate. I think the second thing that we should do is always seek to check. It's the basis of our 159 phone service. It provides customers with a means of checking out the call they have just received is legitimate or not. But expanding that out, it's not just checking that the phone call that we received from someone saying they were from our bank is legitimate. It's every piece of content around which you might be uncertain. Ask a friend, ask someone you trust, can I believe in this? And I think the third piece of advice that I would give is we should not just check, not just disregard that which is too good to be true. But we should also seek to ensure that we know who it is that we are talking to. I think we've all become somewhat complacent in how we buy things online sometimes. Why would you buy a caravan, sight unseen, from an advert that you see on a social media platform? I think we need to remember that in a world where not all content can be verified, we need to establish some personal ground rules around our interaction with that. So it's don't buy sight unseen. Make sure you know who you're buying from. Always check and disregard if it's too good to be true. And I think lastly, just remember that the scanners see what we see. So let's consider this in the context of what is happening in the Middle East and in Israel and the Gaza Strip. We will start over the next month, week, days and weeks to be bombarded with scam websites which purport to be raising money for either people in Israel or people in Palestine. And that 
the whole point about an effective fraud and scam is it will seek to abuse our vulnerabilities and our insecurities at a very specific time point linked to global or personal events. Simon, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. It's been great to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks for listening to this New Money Review podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it or share it on your podcast listening platform. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the right margin of our website, newmoneyreview.com. Listen in soon for our next episode.